Chapter 7 Is there any man or woman whom the Lord Jesus cannot save and fill with radiant joy? He is able. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. My subject Is there a man or woman in this city whom the Lord Jesus cannot save and fill with radiant joy? There is not. But that is merely my assertion, and I do not ask anybody to take anything on my say so. I am going to prove conclusively to every one of you the truth of my assertion. I am going to prove so conclusively that there is not a man or woman in this city whom Jesus Christ cannot save and fill with radiant joy, that if any of you go out of this auditorium tonight unsaved or with a heavy heart, it will be your own fault. I am not going to prove it by merely quoting from the Bible. That would be enough, for the proof that the Bible is God's sure word is overwhelming to anybody who wishes to know the truth. But I am going to prove it by what my own eyes have seen, by present-day facts that are unquestionably and demonstrably facts. But before I give you my text and my argument, I wish to tell you about three people with whom I have dealt personally. The first was a woman, apparently a most desperate and hopeless case. She had killed a man, and in addition to that, she was a professional murderer of infants. But that was not all. She had come one night to hear me preach and was brought under deep conviction of sin, and had called at my office the next day and told me her story, and I dealt with her. But the devil was not willing to let her go so easily, and she resisted her convictions. She was not willing to yield to Jesus Christ. One afternoon she came to me at the close of my Bible class with a hard look on her face and with one of the most terrible mocking laughs I ever heard. She said, Mr. Torrey, you cannot trouble me any more with your preaching or your teaching. I admit that you did trouble me. I admit that my conscience was deeply stirred, but I have prayed to the devil to take away my convictions, and he has done it. Ha ha! She laughed with a hard, steely look in her eyes and an evil look upon her face. As I recall, all that I said in reply was, Well, you are the greatest fool I have ever known. And she went away. But I prayed for her. The second person was a man, a drunken shoemaker. He had tried to kill his wife when he was drunk, and his wife had fled with their child and was in hiding. My private secretary had put her in a place of safety. The man came to me and said, Mr. Tory, do you know where my wife is? I replied, I do. He said, Tell me where she is. I said, I will not. You are not fit to have a wife. You tried to kill your wife last Saturday night. I will not tell you where she is. He said, If you do not tell me where she is, I will kill myself. No, I said, You will not kill yourself. You do not dare. You are a coward. Moreover, if you do kill yourself, you will go to hell. And with that, I dismissed him. But he kept coming to see me. He got under what he called deep conviction of sin, and would come around for me to pray with him, and I would pray with him. He would cry to God to save him from the drink. The tears would roll down his cheeks. Then he would ask me for a nickel or a dime to go down to Pullman to get a job. And I knew the money all went for whiskey. He kept this up for several years. He would not only hit me up for money, but he'd hit the students up also. I suppose he got hundreds of dollars out of the students. 
He would cry and whine and snivel, and the tears would roll down his cheeks. He would profess repentance, then hit somebody up for money, and go off and get drunk. He kept up that game for years. The third person was a man, a very gifted man, said to be the most brilliant Greek scholar, and the most brilliant scholar in some other areas that one of our well-known universities had graduated for many years. But the man had gone against his conscience in many things, until he was in a morbid state of mind bordering on insanity. He had attempted suicide at least five times. Morphine or other drugs had been pumped out of him two or three times. He was sent to me from Ohio to Chicago, under guard lest he kill himself on the way. The man who brought him led him to me and introduced him. Then he said, May I go now? I said, Yes, leave him with me. The man sank down, glared at me, and said, I am possessed of the devil. I said, I think you are. But Jesus Christ came to cast out demons. No, he said, that is not what I mean. I mean the devil has entered into me as he did into Judas Iscariot. I said, that may be true, but Jesus Christ is stronger than the devil. He said, I have committed the unpardonable sin. I said, Jesus Christ says, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. He said, I have no desire to come to him. I said, He does not say that if anyone has a desire to come to him, he will in no wise cast him out. He says, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. The conversation went on in that way for some time, and then I sent him to a room. For many long months, scenes like this were repeated. At times, at night after the meetings, I would take him to our home three miles away on the front end of the car through a wild blizzard, hoping to cool him down. At other times, in the middle of the night, I would hear somebody creeping up the stairs toward my door on the third floor, and I knew it was this man. These three persons seemed to me, at the time, to be the three most hopeless cases I had ever met. So one day I said to God, O oh God, if you will give me these three persons, if you will let me see these three persons clearly saved, I will never despair of another person as long as I live. And God allowed me to see every one of these three persons saved and filled with radiant joy. Years have passed, more than twenty-five years, and they have all stood fast. Almost every time I pass through Chicago, if I speak anywhere in the city, this woman who had prayed to the devil and had stained her hands with human blood and had been guilty of infant murder hears of my visit and is in my audience. She comes to me at the close with a happy, radiant face and tells me how God is using her to lead others to Christ. There are people in this audience tonight who may know her, but they do not know her history. I have never told her story to a human being in a way that they could tell who it was. The second person, the man who tried to kill his wife and for years solicited Christian workers by prayer and weeping and got money out of them to squander in drink, is today a very active and happy member of the Moody Church, with a happy wife and a son now grown to manhood. Many know his history and the details of it. The whole family often comes up to me when I go to Chicago, and all of them beam with smiles. When I held a union meeting of the churches of Chicago years afterward, he was one of my most faithful ushers. 
The third person is known by many here who have heard him teach the Word of God with mighty power in Chicago, Toronto, St. Louis, Detroit, and many other cities in America and across the Pacific in China. Do you wonder after three such experiences as these, and I could relate many more, some of which might seem more wonderful than any of these, that I never despair of anyone? Do you need to wonder why I have an unshakable confidence that there is not a man or woman in Los Angeles or anywhere else whom the Lord Jesus Christ, the omnipotent Son of God, cannot save and fill with radiant joy? Now for my text. It consists of only three words, three short words. There are only eight letters in the whole text. You will find these three short words in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. He is able. The whole verse is a great verse and sums up in a wonderful way what the mighty Jesus, the risen Son of God, is able to do. It is, Wherefore also he is able to save to the uttermost them that draw near unto God through him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. American Standard Version. But I wish to concentrate your attention tonight on these three words He is able. What Jesus is able to do. Let's look at what the Lord Jesus is able to do. Let's look at some of the tremendously important, specific things he is able to do. The verse from which my text is taken sums up what he is able to do in four wonderful words Save to the uttermost. Not merely from the uttermost. We shall see before we finish that he is able to do that, but the verse teaches far more than that. It says that he is able to save to the uttermost. The Greek words so translated mean unto entire completeness or unto entire perfectness. But I wish to call your attention to some of the wonderful details that are included in that striking general statement, to the uttermost or unto entire perfectness. First of all, the Lord Jesus is able to forgive sins. That was his claim when he was here upon earth. He said of himself, The Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Mark chapter 2, verse 10. He is able to forgive any sin and all sins. He himself tells us that there is only one unpardonable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 through 32. The deliberately attributing to the devil what you know to be the work of the Holy Spirit. And it is evident from our Lord's words that the only reason that this sin is unpardonable is because the people who commit this sin are so hardened and determined in sin that they will not repent and have no desire to repent. So, if anyone here has any desire to repent and be forgiven, it proves conclusively that you have not committed this one unpardonable sin. Absolutely every other sin the Lord Jesus can forgive, and will forgive, if the sinner meets the one condition of forgiveness, simply putting his trust for forgiveness in the Lord Jesus. How do we know that the Lord Jesus is able to forgive sins? Because he said he had authority on earth to forgive sins, Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, and proved on the spot that he had that authority which he claimed. Furthermore, God set the stamp of His own endorsement on this wonderful claim of Jesus Christ and upon all of His claims by raising Him from the dead. 
His resurrection from the dead is the best proven fact of history. The proof of it is overwhelming. But that is not all. Thousands upon thousands of living witnesses today bear witness to the fact that they know that the Lord Jesus has forgiven their sins. My own sins were very many and very great, and I know that the Lord Jesus has forgiven every one of them. Let me tell you of one instance, though not more notable than many of which I have had personal knowledge. Years ago, there was in New York City a young woman of about 25 years of age. She had been sold into a life of sin by her own mother at the age of 11, and not only that, but she was also sold to a black person even though she was white. She lived this awful life in the vilest slums of New York until she was about 25 years old. One night, a friend of mine saw her stagger up from an underground den of infamy in the Pell Street district in New York. She leaned against a lamppost and groaned in her misery. My friend stepped up to her and told her of the Lord Jesus Christ and His power to save. He sent her to a place where she would be sheltered and looked after. He led her to a definite acceptance of Jesus Christ. Her life was marvelously transformed. Her every sin was blotted out. From being one of the vilest of the vile in New York, she became a remarkably beautiful Christian character. One day she stood on the public platform in the Cooper Institute in New York, and with tears running down her cheeks and the cheeks of her audience, pled with wonderful power to three thousand people to accept Jesus Christ. Her previous life had broken her health. She lived only about two years after her conversion, but they were wonderful years. The night she died, the man who had led her to Christ called to see her in the home where she was sheltered. As he entered the room, the smile of heaven was upon her face. A large picture of his daughter, who had died at four years of age, hung at the foot of the dying slum girl's bed. She looked at her benefactor and said, Uncle Charlie, I shall soon see Florence. Then a brighter light came into her face and she said, Uncle Charlie, in a few minutes I shall see Jesus. And she departed to be with the king. Can anyone question, then, that Jesus Christ has a power on earth today to forgive sins, to forgive all sins, and to wash the record of the vilest sinner on earth as white as snow? In the second place, the Lord Jesus is able to save from sin's power. He is able to save any man from sin's power, no matter how completely he is bound or how hopelessly he is straining in his own strength to throw off the shackles of sin. How do we know that? Because the Lord Jesus Himself says so. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Every one that committeth sin is the bondservant, slave of sin. Now we all know that is true. We all know that it is true with all of us. We have personal experience of the fact. But our Lord also says, If therefore the Son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. John chapter 8, verse 36. But our Lord Jesus not only claimed when He was on earth that He could save any man who would put his trust in Him from the power of sin and Satan, but He also proved it. No one ever came to Him for deliverance from the power of sin, but that He got it. And Jesus Christ is proving today 
that he has power on earth today to deliver any man from the power of sin. Miracles of deliverance from sin's power are just as common today as they were when Jesus our Lord walked upon this earth. Indeed, they are more common than they were then. For then he was in his humiliation, but now he is in his resurrection glory and power. John chapter 14, verse 12. I wanted to tell you of some instances that had come under my personal observation. But so many came surging into my mind that I had difficulty in deciding which to tell. There was Billy the Boozer in Cardiff, Wales, and Bob in Glasgow, Scotland, who sent a defiant letter to the platform saying that he was in the gallery, that Jesus Christ could not save him, and that when he died and went to hell, the devil would resign and appoint him leader in his place. Then there was a man in Liverpool. There was also a woman in Dublin who seemed the most awful woman I ever met. She must have been sixty years old, highly educated, intimately associated with people whose names were known around the world in cultured circles. But I will tell you of a man in Minneapolis. He had once been notable in the world. He had been postmaster in his hometown. But he had gone down through drink until he was separated from his wife, children, mother, and all friends. He drifted to Minneapolis, became a beer-slinger in the lowest saloon in the city, the Jumbo Saloon, but became so bad that they kicked him out of there, so he wandered on the streets. He had one small coin left in his pocket, all he had in the world, a ten-cent piece. He came down Washington Avenue drunk. He came by the brilliantly lighted hall where I was speaking and thought it was some free lunch joint. He staggered in with his hat on the side of his head and a stub of a cigar, which he had picked out of the gutter in his mouth. He looked confusedly around the room. A lady stepped up to him and courteously asked him if he would take off his hat and give her the stub of his cigar, which she laid aside. She brought him down to the front of the hall right near the platform, to the only seat she could find vacant. The speaker, another man who had been wonderfully saved from drink, was telling of the saving power of Jesus Christ. This poor down-and-out man leered up at me, lurched in his chair and said, Do you believe that? referring to the testimony that the man was giving. I said, Yes, I know that what this man says is true, and the Lord Jesus can save you too. When the man had finished his testimony, I said, Joe, take this man around into my office, which was at the back of the platform. After the meeting was over, he was somewhat sobered, and I led him to Christ. He left the building a saved man. The appetite that nothing else could break was broken in a moment by the power of the risen Christ. He never touched another drop of drink. The next day he found work, peeling potatoes in a cheap restaurant. Soon he found better work. Then he was an employee of one of the leading railroads in the Northwest. He was promoted from position to position. I moved to Chicago and became the superintendent of the Bible Institute, and he was planning to come down and prepare for the ministry. But his health broke down, and the higher railway officials thought so much of him that they sent him down to Missouri to a warmer climate and paid all his expenses for months in the hope that he might recover. But he passed into glory. After his death, his mother, to whom he had been reunited, wrote me and told me of his triumphant death. She sent me his picture, saying, You were kind to my boy when he was down. 
and I want you to have this to remember him by. I wrote his story on the back of the picture and placed it on the mantelpiece in my office in Chicago. Whenever I was tempted to be discouraged, I would turn around in my chair and look at that noble Christian face looking down on me from the mantelpiece. Yes, Jesus is able. Able to snap the bonds of drink or drugs or lust or any sin of any man or any woman who comes in utter helplessness to him and puts their trust in him to set them free. In the third place, our Lord Jesus is able to keep us from falling. We read in Jude 24, authorized King James Version, He is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. Thank God that we not only read it in Jude 24, but we also read it in the experience of thousands of men and women today. Our Lord Jesus proves every day that He can keep any man or woman, any human being, from falling. I have known a multitude of men and women who have thought that there was no use for them to try to be Christians or to lead a better life because of their utter bondage to sin of some form, sometimes many forms. They thought the Lord Himself could not keep them from falling, but they were persuaded to put their trust in Him, and He has kept them from falling. Let me tell you of just one. It was in Ottawa, Canada. One afternoon there came into the meeting a most degraded-looking specimen of humanity. Someone whispered to me that he was the champion welterweight boxer of Canada and an awful drunkard. He was drunk that afternoon. Before I began to preach, I prayed that God would save him. I saw Mr. Jacoby seated beside him, and he afterwards dealt with him personally and led him to Christ. They told me that the man was such a desperate character that a saloon-keeper in Hull across the river had hired him to stand at the bar and drink with everyone that came in who would pay for his drinks. But knowing how dangerous he was when drunk, this saloon-keeper riveted around his ankle a heavy iron ring fastened to a heavy chain that was fastened to a great spike driven into the floor. When he professed to accept Christ, all Ottawa was amazed. But they said he would not stand. Bets were made among the members of Parliament as to how long he would. They bet that he would not stand twenty-four hours, but he did. Then they bet that he would not stand another twenty-four hours, but he did. Then they bet that he would not stand another twenty-four hours, but he did. And they gave up betting. That man was only one out of a great multitude. I could stand here by the hour and tell of slaves of dope, cocaine, morphine, chloral, and of other drugs. I could tell of slaves of drink, slaves of the gambling mania, slaves of impurity in every known form, and slaves of every sin of which I have ever heard. I could tell of hopeless slaves, despairing slaves, seemingly bound for a hopeless sinner's grave and an eternal hell. But these have been set free and are among the finest Christians I have ever known. I am not speculating tonight. I am not guessing. I am not theorizing. I am telling you what I know by my own personal experience and observation. I tell you that the Lord Jesus Christ is able to keep any man or woman in this building tonight from falling. If you come to Him with an honest heart and put your trust in Him as your crucified Savior from the guilt of sin and your risen Savior from the power of sin. 
In the fourth place, our Lord Jesus Christ, our mighty divine Savior, not the Savior of Unitarianism, Theosophy, Christian Science, New Thought, Higher Criticism, or New Theology, but the Savior of this book, the risen Christ Jesus, the very Son of God, is able to completely transform the lives of men and women who put their trust in Him. This book says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 Yes, this book says it, and the experience of countless multitudes proves it true. Our Lord Jesus proved in Bible days that He could completely transform men's lives by doing it. For example, He transformed Saul of Tarsus, who had stained his hands with the blood of men and women and children who were guilty of no other crime than that of believing in Jesus Christ. Saul of Tarsus, who had breathed an atmosphere of threatenings and slaughter, was transformed into Paul the Apostle, whose heart was filled with love instead of hate, and whose hands were given to saving others instead of slaughtering others. Our Lord transformed him from being Saul, a bigoted Jew, into Paul, a devoted Christian, who instead of seeking the death of others, laid down his own life to save others. This Paul, toward the end of his life, wrote from what he knew by his own experience, as well as by inspiration of God. Scripture This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15 But the living Lord Jesus, still living in glory at the right hand of God the Father, is doing the same thing today right here on earth. Here again a crowd of memories surges before my mind. Here is just one case. A boy of German parentage was drunk in Philadelphia when he was nine years old. At fifteen years old no school could manage him, nor could his father and mother. He was a young desperado. He enlisted in the Navy and spent four years in the Navy during the Civil War. At the end of the Civil War he was given a place on the Philadelphia police force, but was so full of criminal traits himself that he was discharged from the Philadelphia police force. The mayor of the city said he would not put him on the force again if he were his own brother. He became a young outlaw in Philadelphia. He joined the regular army and was sent west in the Indian Wars. He experienced some desperate encounters, not so much with Indians as with desperados, and he was as desperate and lawless as any of them. He spent most of his time in the guardhouse. There was a motley company of desperados in the guardhouse at the time, some of the most desperate criminals in the land, and they elected him chief of the gang. He was dishonorably discharged from the army and became a notorious character. He was ordered out of the city of Omaha by the mayor and by the chief of police, and was given only twenty-four hours to leave the city because he had nearly killed the bully of Omaha in a fight. He was invited to join the Jesse James gang. He went to an Iowa town where, because of having considerable money left to him by his father, he went into business. But he became so notoriously bad that when the merchants of the town would hear his whoop as he came up the streets at night, they would turn out the lights in their stores and put up the shutters at the windows. The town outlawed him, forced him to leave the town, and ordered him not to come back. But he came back. 
a revival service was then in progress. He went in with one of his cronies. When the invitation was given for all who would accept Christ to lift their hands, he said to the other man, You lift your hand and I will lift mine. The other man said to him, Bill, you lift your hand and I will lift mine. But they were both joking and ridiculing the meeting. But the next night, a man who sat in front in this church one morning a few weeks ago, a prominent lawyer, went to him and said, Bill, come up to the altar. And he went. And the Lord Jesus met him, saved him, and transformed him into the noblest, truest man I ever knew, the truest friend I have on earth today, the dearest friend outside of my own family. And if anyone would ask me who was the most Christ-like man I ever knew, without hesitation I would say, the Reverend William S. Jacobi, who at the age of forty-two turned his back upon a notorious career of sin and accepted Jesus Christ. And our risen Lord proved His resurrection power by completely transforming that life into the likeness of His own. Oh, I know, I say I know, not guess nor think nor hope, I know that our Lord Jesus, our mighty, risen, divine Savior, the Savior of this man, is able to transform any life from all that is vilest into all that is noblest and highest and most divine. In the fifth place, our mighty Lord Jesus is able to fill the saddest hearts with the most radiant joy. We read in this book, They looked unto Him and were radiant. Psalm 34, verse 5. And though now ye see Him not, yet believing, ye rejoice greatly with joy unspeakable and full of glory. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. These words were written by one whose heart was once utterly sad and broken, but was now filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Our Lord Jesus lifts men out of the deepest depths of utter despair to the highest heights of rapturous joy. Here again I remember crowds of men and women in inconsolable and utter sorrow, whom it has been my privilege to introduce to Jesus Christ who became among the most radiantly happy people I ever knew. I am tempted to tell you of the one I knew best and still know best of all, myself. I know what it means to be driven to such desperation by heart agony that seemed so unendurable that I started to end my own life. I have known what it means to spring out of bed with a shriek of agony and despair in the middle of the night and cower on the floor in an agony that was a very hell on earth. In years gone by, I have said, I know that there is a hell because I have been there. But thank God that for years and years this glorious Lord Jesus has filled my whole soul day and night with a continuous rapturous joy amidst all sorts of trials and perils, and losses on sea and land, and in nearly every corner of the earth but I will tell of another, and not myself. There was a woman in Cleveland, Ohio, the wife of a well-to-do merchant. But financial reverses overtook the man, and he was forced to give up his business. Almost everything he had in the world was swept away. He went to Chicago to seek a new start, leaving his wife, two sons, and a daughter in Cleveland. He became sick in Chicago, and they telegraphed his wife to come. She hurried to Chicago, getting there late at night, and drove at once to the hospital where her husband lay ill, very ill. But by some strange misunderstanding, 
they refused to allow her to see her husband that night. Being so late, they told her to come the next day. When she came early the next day, he was dead. Money gone, business gone, husband gone, home gone. She spent hours weeping, and her prolonged weeping injured her eyes. She called upon an eye specialist, not knowing that he was a Christian scientist, but supposing him to be a regular practitioner. Following his Christian science methods, he assured her that there was no serious trouble with her eyes and they would soon be all right. This was the assurance he gave her day after day, but her eyes became steadily worse until she finally consulted a real physician. After a careful examination, he said, Madam, I am forced to tell you that there is absolutely no hope of saving your eyesight. If you had come to me sooner, your eyes could easily have been saved, but you have now waited so long that it is impossible. In a short time, she was totally blind. Money gone, business gone, home broken up, husband dead, eyesight gone. A woman of culture and refinement, left to face the world with her three children and no money, no friends, no husband, no sight. Is it any wonder that her heart was filled with gloom? She came to hear me preach in Chicago. She accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. Her heartbroken soul was filled with radiant joy, and she became a radiantly happy Christian. Any prayer meeting night, you could have seen her in her place, in her widow's garments and with her blind eyes, but with a wonderful smile upon her face and oftentimes she would rise and publicly thank God for all the losses that had come into her life, because through them she was led to the Lord Jesus Christ into a joy she had never known when she had had all this world offered. Years and years have passed. I received a letter from her only a short time ago, full of trust and full of longing to see others saved and helped. Our Lord Jesus can do the same tonight for the saddest heart of man or woman in this room. He can fill and flood your soul with the wondrous and perpetual sunshine of His grace. He says, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. John chapter 4 verse 14 It is true. Thousands upon thousands can testify to its truth. People sometimes say that religion makes men and women crazy. Some forms of religion may make men and women crazy, but Jesus Christ does not make men and women crazy. He gives the Holy Spirit to those who receive Him, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22-23 are these the things that make men and women crazy? Letting Christ into the heart has saved many men and women from insanity. I have known many who were on the verge of insanity from sorrow, morbidness, and despair, whom I have led to Christ. They are radiantly happy people today. In order to get this fullness of joy, every Christian must make a full surrender to God. There is no fullness of joy for one who tries to serve the Lord Jesus Christ with one hand and holds fast to the world with the other hand. If we keep back anything from Jesus Christ, we will not get fullness of joy. Are you a professing Christian? Do you not have fullness of joy? 
there is something you are keeping back from God. In the sixth place, our Lord Jesus Christ is able to use in glorious service those whom He saves. Our Lord Jesus is able to use the unlikeliest instrument, the man or woman of least promise. This book tells us that God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27-29 through 29. How well I remember a drunken expressman on the streets of Chicago, a Roman Catholic Irishman, a worthless wreck, but whom a personal worker led to accept Jesus Christ as his Savior. And dear Cully became one of the most useful soul winners in Chicago. It was one of the greatest privileges of my life to be able to do honor to my Lord and honor to myself by conducting his funeral service to which multitudes flocked. In the last place, our Lord Jesus, the risen, mighty Son of God, is able to raise from the dead and to give eternal life to all who put their trust in Him in the life that now is. He Himself says, And this is the will of Him that sent me, that of all that which He hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that every one that beholdeth the Son and believeth on Him should have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. John chapter 6, verses 39-40 through 40. He also says in that wonderful prayer of his on the night before his crucifixion, These things spake Jesus, and lifting up his eyes to heaven he said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee, even as thou gavest him authority over all flesh, that to all whom thou hast given him he should give eternal life. John chapter 17, verses 1-2 through two. It is true that the wonderful and glorious work of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, Titus chapter 2, verse 13, does not end at death. It begins there. The best part of it begins there. Oh, the salvation that is limited to this life is not worth much. This life is so short, and eternity is so long. A brief lifetime of bitter disappointment, sorrow, loss and intense and constant suffering would pay off if it would bring us an eternity of joy, victory, and glory. But Jesus Christ brings a whole lifetime of joy, peace, and power, and an eternity also of boundless joy, abounding peace, amazing power, and glory hereafter. He is indeed able to save to the uttermost them that draw near unto God through Him. For whom does our Lord Jesus do these things? Now let's ask the all-important question. For whom does our glorious Lord Jesus do these things of which we have been speaking? Whom does He save to the uttermost and fill with radiant joy in the life that now is and crown with infinite glory in the never-ending life that is to come? The question can be answered in a few words. Our text answers it and the uniform experience of thousands upon thousands of men and women answers it the same way. Listen to the text. Scripture He is able to save to the uttermost them that draw near unto God through Him. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 He saves to the uttermost them that draw near unto God through Him. All of them, and no one else.
He will save anyone here and fill them with radiant joy tonight. Anyone here, any man, woman, or child who will draw near unto God through Him. It matters not who you are. It matters not what you have done. It matters not how helpless and hopeless a slave of any sin you may be. It matters not how dark, sad, and full of foreboding and despair your heart may be. Draw near unto God through Jesus Christ, and He will save you right now, and He will fill your heart with radiant joy right now. What does it mean to draw near unto God through Him? The answer is simple. God is a holy God, and you and I are sinners. And the only way a sinner can approach a holy God is on the ground of atoning blood, and Jesus Christ has shed His blood to atone for our sins. His blood is the only atonement for sins in the whole universe. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. In other words, He did it by taking our place and bearing our penalty. For the sinner, to come to God through Jesus Christ is acknowledging himself as a lost sinner with no hope in himself or in man, but believing what God says about Jesus Christ. It means that he has laid all our sins upon Christ, and the sinner must trust God to forgive all his sins, because Jesus Christ died in his place. There is no other way for the sinner to approach God. If anyone will not come to God through Jesus Christ, he cannot come to God at all. The vilest sinner this world ever knew, who will believe God's testimony about Jesus Christ and God's testimony about himself, who will take his place as a lost sinner before God and trust God for Jesus Christ's sake to forgive his sins, will find salvation. For he is able to save to the uttermost them that draw near unto God through him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. These things that I have been mentioning are some of the things that our Lord Jesus is able to do for you tonight. Will you let him do them for you? Will you come to God through him that he may do them for you? Will you accept God's testimony about yourself that you are an utterly lost sinner, and God's testimony about Jesus Christ that he has borne your sins in his own body on the cross? Will you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, your Lord, and your King? If you will, Jesus Christ, the mighty Son of God, will do these things for you that we have been mentioning. It rests with each of you individually to say whether you will have your sins forgiven tonight. The Lord Jesus stands by your side and says, I am able to forgive all your sins tonight. Trust me, and I will do it. It rests with each of you individually to say whether you will have deliverance from sin's power. The Lord Jesus the mighty Deliverer, stands by your side and says, I am able to deliver you from the power of every sin. Ask Him to do it, and trust Him to do it. Put your trust in Him as your risen Lord and Savior, who has all power in heaven and on earth. Trust Him to set you free from every sin, and He will do it. It rests with each of you individually to say whether you will know the transforming power of Jesus Christ in your life tonight, transforming you from all that you should not be, but which you are, into all that you should be, and all that you can become by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ stands right by you tonight and says, 
I am able to completely transform your life if you will put it in my hands and trust me to do it. It rests with each of you individually to say whether you will have your heart filled with radiant joy or not. O oh, this mighty giver of the Holy Spirit, who becomes to each one who receives him a fountain of water springing up every day and every hour unto everlasting life. He leans down beside you and holds out to you the golden goblet that contains the water of life. And if you will put your trust in him as your crucified and risen Savior, who bore all your sins in his own body on the cross, and ask him and trust him to give you his Holy Spirit to fill you with radiant joy, he will do it. It rests with each of you individually to say whether you will receive the sure guarantee of being raised again when you die, and of receiving eternal life, joy that never ends, and the hope of infinite power and glory. That mighty one, whom God has appointed to give eternal life to those who put their trust in him and raise them up at the last day, stands by your side and says, I will give eternal life and resurrection. Will you accept it as a free gift? And if you will believe his word and put your trust in him, he will give you eternal life, and you will never perish, and all the powers of earth and hell cannot pluck you out of his hand. John chapter 10 verses 28 through 29. He is able. He is able. He is able. Will you come to him? Will you put your trust in him? Will you surrender fully to him? Will you put yourself in his hands to do with you as he will? Will you draw near unto God through Jesus Christ? If you do, you will get all these things. He will save you to the uttermost and fill your heart with radiant joy. If you do not, there will be barrenness and bitterness, sorrow and emptiness, despair and spiritual death, gloom and agony, and gnashing of teeth in impotent rage, and sorrow throughout all eternity for you.